Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. I'm super excited about this week's episode where I sat down with Michelle Cassandra Johnson, social worker, yoga teacher, longtime race equity trainer, and now author of the book, Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World. She is shaking things up in the yoga world and speaking all of the truths about toxic culture and white supremacy so that real healing is possible. Okay. This episode is going to change your perspective about self-care. Michelle Cassandra Johnson learned to be fierce and radical about her self-care after her colleague Cynthia Brown passed away from cancer, which she believed in many ways was caused by white supremacy. It marked a huge turning point in her life when she decided that she wasn't going to let this world kill her. She was going to thrive. But in that process, she realized that it is impossible to heal when you're navigating a system that wasn't designed to heal you. And so she wrote a book called Skill in Action to help us redefine and reclaim what yoga and wellness really looks like in a toxic culture. Yoga and contemplative practice is a pathway to healing, but only when we are willing to do the difficult and uncomfortable work of acknowledging and feeling into the truth of a culture that is dominated by ideologies of whiteness and individualism. The pain of that culture of separation demands to be felt, and that is the only way towards healing. She challenges us to hold the reality that we are both one human interdependent family and, and this is a big and, and that we are living a very different experience based on how institutions and culture are set up for our particular identity and social location. There is a shared experience in how we get free and there are unique roles and responsibilities that we each play given our location. And that is part of the skill in action that we need to cultivate. The truth is we are not really doing yoga. We are not really being mindful. We are not really well unless we center a level of consciousness that acknowledges the truth of who we are and how we got here. Otherwise, we're just replicating the toxic systems that we're trying to transform. But Michelle reminds us that we are bigger than white supremacy and we can do better. We can construct something better and we have to for the sake of all of us. Check it out. Let's say brilliant things on this podcast, shall we? We will. Always. All right. I'm here with my dear friend, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, who is so many things. She's been a social worker, a race equity trainer for 20 years, former elected official. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. And of course, a yoga teacher. And I'm with her in her home in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where today she's done, and I'm not kidding you, a self-care intervention with me. Yes. (laughs) Because it's my first day off in I don't know how long. And she made a mandatory rule that I wasn't allowed to open my computer. But somehow I convinced her to do this podcast with me, which really isn't work. No, it's fun. It's It's a labor of love. 
Yes, and it's birthing new things. We're creating. But you really model this way in which you do fierce, hardcore work in the world and you have a relentless commitment to self-care. How do you find the discipline to do that? I feel like the discipline around self-care came after my colleague Cynthia Brown passed away. She passed away in November um, of 2016, right after Trump was elected and a week after Trump was elected. And I remember having a moment of, yeah, of feeling like I might die because of white supremacy. And Cynthia certainly had an awareness that she was sick. She had cancer because of white supremacy. She named that. She told me about it. And I just felt like I'm not going to let this world kill me because it's set up to kill Mm -hmm. me. And so I'm really going to be fierce and radical about my self-care because I'm doing big work in the world. And so for all the big work I'm doing in the world, I need that amount of self-care to recover and to be able to persist. And that's when it transformed for me. Is that when you wrote the book? Is that when you decided to write Skill in Action? The idea for the book happened, I think, a month before that. And I didn't start writing until January of 2017. But Cynthia certainly had something to do with it. And she's in the book. I... I Um, wrote a section about her and um, white supremacy and how she was navigating cancer and trying to heal from cancer in a system that was set up to harm her because she was a black Mm. woman. And this moment, I had a moment of feeling like it's impossible to heal when you're navigating a system that wasn't designed to heal you. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Or that's designed to heal some people and not all people. Right, right. So the book is called Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World. And in the book, you say this. The experience of being a black person in a whitewashed America takes my breath away. The experience of seeing people who look just like me, black, female, young and ambitious, being murdered at the hands of police and white supremacy takes my breath away. And that that quote always breaks me wide open. And and it brings me back to Eric Garner. That's what it reminds me of. And and his quote, I can't breathe, right? When he said that at the hands of, of police in New York. And I've heard you say in, in many of our trainings that it's a radical act to breathe. But I, you know, and it's funny, like that's, I have a really hard time breathing. You've told me this before. And I, I just wonder like how, we're supposed to breathe in the face of what's happening in the world, right? How, to, how, how we can conjure the will and the conviction to keep breathing, to take care of ourselves, like all the things that you're naming, we still need to do, despite what, what we're, what's constantly coming at us. How do we do it? We remember that we'll die if we don't breathe. Why is it a radical act? Why? Because the culture is set up to kill most of us or to harm most of us or to limit our space to breathe. That's how the culture was constructed. And once we really understand that on a cellular level, then we'll understand the necessity of breathing because the culture's not, dominant culture's not going to make space for us to do it. And so we have to like break through spaces and create breath, right? And do it collectively to heal and to breathe and to live. Can you define for like our listeners what what you mean by dominant culture? Yeah, the simplest way that I describe dominant culture is to talk about who decides who's normal and who's not, 
who fits the norms and who doesn't, who should be free and who should suffer or die. Um, and dominant culture defines reality for itself and everyone else. And if I think about myself and the way I'm socially, socially located or the way I'm positioned, I think about how many institutions I've navigated and my experience of not being able to define my reality in the institution. So for example, when I go to the doctor, the medical institution has been conditioned in a particular way by dominant culture not to see me as human, not to trust me as a black woman, not to believe that I know my body, right? And so dominant culture has an idea about what it means for me to be in my body and then makes decisions that define how I experience the system and really then how I'm able to like heal and live, right? And um, receive medical services. So I think about dominant culture as the group of people that's saying this is normal and this isn't normal and we're going to push out anyone who is not normal. It's hard and yet it's important for me to hear this because I live in a white body and I actually get to move in those spaces and in those systems like I belong. Um, and, and I feel like for white folks, um, without proximity to people of color and without the consciousness of a system that's designed to keep some people well and keep some people sick or leave some people out, um, you don't need to see it, right? Unless you see it, right? Like white folks get to move in the world and see only what they need to see um, to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, to take care of their communities and cul-de-sacs. Um, how do, you know, what do you feel like are the ways in which for white folks who are not yet conscious, not yet awake, not yet seeing, like, how do we get white people to see more clearly what's really happening in the world? I think on a spiritual and soul level, white people have to recognize the reality around their I mean, they're dying as a result of white supremacy. They have had to give up their traditions, their culture, their language, their customs to be white. To assimilate. Right? And that that's the goal of, of institutional oppression or racism or cultural racism is to say, assimilate so you can be part of the white group and belong. But that means giving up, that means shedding layers of who you are. And I feel like white people have to realize that or recognize it. I don't know if white people will be able to shift the reality around that. I feel like white people need to realize that to be able to understand that people of color are moving in the world and having a very different experience and having to shed layers all of the time. And so there's some like common experience between you and me, right? That you have to shed layers to be white and I have to shed layers to survive because the culture set up for you to survive and in, in based on race, mm -hmm. not based on other identities, but certainly based on race. And I feel like it has to do with white people recognizing that they're losing something um, in a culture that's all about scarcity and competitiveness and individualism, that they're losing something on a like spiritual soul level, that they're harming people, that they're dying as a result of other people being harmed. That's what has to happen for transformation to happen. Mm -hmm. I know that that's what it was for me, right? It was like the understanding that my well-being couldn't be fully realized. My truth, my truth and my purpose couldn't be in full integrity if I were to not actually see um, systemic racism, see the, um, the, the culture, the indoctrination of white supremacy full on. Um, and that's when um, 
I think that's when it became, because it, it became my problem too, right? Because I think for a lot of folks of privilege, um, um, they get to say like, that's not my problem because they don't feel like it's impacting them directly. And yet we know that people are being impacted deeply um, by like by systems of oppression, by systems of racism, by by white suprem- by the op- by the oppression, the burden um, of upholding white supremacy, of of abandoning who we really are, um, forfeiting our lineage, um, assimilating and conforming. Um, and so there's something around when you go back to like breathing. There's something around breathing into that radical expression and disruption and reclaiming um, that feels essential to becoming like who we need to be together. Mm-hmm. In a culture that says, um, think, don't breathe and don't feel. Yeah. That's, that's part of the ask, right? To lean into whiteness, to live into whiteness is to intellectualize everything and not to feel. Because if you start to feel, then it means you're gonna change. And if you actually start to feel and open your eyes and see what's going on and understand that um, things are set up to be inequitable, right? And that things are set up, meaning the institutions and culture, for some people to thrive and other people to die, right? That then calls people into something bigger. It asks, it requires something bigger. And, and the pressure and constraints from the culture are just think your way through this. Mm-hmm just intellectualize, just be smart enough, right? Just be perfect enough. Don't feel, because if you start to feel, it means that the culture will shift. Well, and that feels like just another way of being a bystander. Um, is that where yoga comes in? Yes, I think yoga and contemplative practice um, is, a, is a pathway to transformation because at least in this country, in the U.S., people usually enter the practice of yoga through a physical practice, right? Moving in their bodies. And the culture, whiteness also says, don't, don't really move in your body unless you're competing to like be thin, right? Or like you're competing to be better. Um, So people enter the yoga practice, I feel like, and our body's the densest part of who we are to start to transform. And then what's opened up for them is the, um, I think more, more subtle parts of who we are and the deeper parts of who we are in a lot of ways underneath the physical body. And this is where I think it gets tricky because the subtle and deeper parts are about the um, awareness that we are connected in a culture that says we're isolated. And this is actually where spiritual bypassing comes in because there's an idea that we are one and we're connected and that's enough. Mm-hmm. And it's absolutely not enough. And so the practice is a pathway to move through all of the toxicity that the culture conditions us into um, or inoculates. That's a word that you use a lot around it. And um, the physical practice is a way to understand we actually can transform and change. And then we get into the real discomfort underneath the physical transformation. And we're like called into shifting the way we think and the way we are Mm -hmm. and the way we relate Mm -hmm and the way we're in community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I hold this belief that if you really do the yoga fully, um, the whole work, it becomes inevitable that you begin to see what's really happening in the world. And and we're, all, we're right now seeing so much speaking truth to power. Um, and, and yet, even in wellness worlds that center embodiment, 
we still hear a lot of, um, we are all human, we are all one, positive vibes only. Um, it's a lot like the way feminism is, is whitewashed when, fra- when framed in terms of we are all women. <laughs> so how do we balance that knowing that our well-being is bound and we are interconnected and interdependent and the kind of intersectionality that you're talking about? I think it's holding multiple truths in a culture that says we're, um, we need to think in terms of a binary, so an either or, or right or wrong, or one way, right, or one truth, or a singular experience. And I think it's holding the reality that we are one. I absolutely believe we are one. There is no separation. There is no separation between you and me in this conversation, right, and our lived experience. There's no separation in what's happening around us outside of my home, right, and what's happening inside of this conversation. (laughs) There's no separation in what's happening in the culture, in the world, and what's happening inside of this room right now. And so it's, it's, it's holding that truth. We're one, there's no separation and understanding that we're in a culture that says separate based on difference and identity and understand like we're living very different experiences based on how institutions and culture have been set up for us. Mm-hmm. So it's being able to hold the duality of that. Like what do we do with the reality that we're one and we don't actually get to move in the world in the same way? Mm-hmm. Well, and the yoga, I feel like allows us invites us to build the capacity to actually hold that paradox. It dem- I actually think if we, if we really live into yoga and, and practice yoga, that it demands that we understand that duality. Mm-hmm. 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 It, it's not even an invitation. Mm-hmm. That's not how it feels. And if we're not, are we really doing the yoga? I, I don't think we, we're doing something. We're moving. Mm-hmm. We're moving our we're bodies. We're changing shapes. Yeah. We're inhaling and exhaling. We're exercising. Right. I think that's such a like powerful and provocative calling up of the yoga community. Like if we're not centering this level of consciousness and these kinds of conversations inside of the yoga community, then are we really doing yoga? Right. And more yogis need to ask that question. Yeah. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What's motivating me? Is this yoga? We'll be right back after this with Michelle Cassandra Johnson. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to create content that matters for citizens who care. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have a radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our Patreon community for as little as $1 per month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like radical meditations, community forums, and lifestyle content that you can trust. Not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. So check us out on patreon.com slash citizenwell and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone.
One of the things that you often ask and we often ask in our trainings together that I think is a really powerful practice is the question, how are we replicating systems of oppression? And I think it speaks to how insidious the ideology of white supremacy, of individualism, of capitalism is even inside the most sacred spaces that we hold together. And for me, it feels like an everyday, that like holding that question for myself feels like an everyday practice the same way that meditation feels like an everyday practice. Because I often find myself replicating before I even know that I'm doing it, right? That Mm -hmm. like I take on the shape of white supremacy before I even know I'm doing it. And even with all of the work that I've done and all of the training and all of the skill building and all of the vocabulary that I have, um, I can be quick to shape shift, right? Into a superior and supreme state in the world. And that blows my mind how internalized it is and how indoctrinated I am. And I'm just curious about like, what do you think that practice demands of us as um, activists, as yogis, as um, spiritual practitioners in the world so that we can be a constant disruption Mm -hmm. to what we know is playing out over and over and over and over again? The practice of yoga demands that we remove the illusion. And it demands us to remember to remember. And I, I always say this, that there's a cultural amnesia. And what oppression asks us to do is to deny and forget and pretend and lie about the truth. And so yoga pushes against that and says, remove the illusion and actually see your true self. And if we take that to a collective experience and talk about it that way, not just my individual self, but the collective, which means we have to account for history. So yoga demands that we actually account for history and we name it and we um, understand how systems have been set up to serve some and not others. Yoga demands us to live into our dharma, to do our work in the world and to remember we're connected to something bigger than us, right? This moment is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than us in this room. Yoga asks us to heal and and remind us we have the capacity to heal. Yoga asks us to move through discomfort, which is really resistance. If we think about um, movement building and organizing and anti-racism work, resistance shows up because the paradigm has to shift. And so yoga says, sit with your discomfort, move through your discomfort. Discomfort is different than pain. So yoga demands us to like be a different way. It demands us to be countercultural if we think about dominant culture. It, it, um, it offers uh, principles and philosophy and practices to move through when we're feeling uncomfortable. I feel like everything is, if we uh, truly understand what yoga is, everything is there for us to actually move through the moment that we're in right now, politically, um, the moment that we're in culturally, the moment we're in institutionally. We just have to start practicing it in the way it was intended. And for folks who are listening who may not identify as yogis or who may not even think they're practicing yoga, like how would you define yoga in um, in like an accessible way? Like what is the thing that you're describing that calls us up to like interrogate and hold ourselves in integrity 
in the most holistic way possible? I always say, um, or often I say in meditations that, um, the mind limit us, limits us. So the mind actually, uh, the monkey mind limits us and, um, makes us create narratives and stories. And then we respond to those narratives and what yoga is about. It's about the breath, which the breath is life. And the breath has the capacity to connect us to our true self. So the, the essence of who I am, I will find that out through the breath. I will find that out through my inhales and exhales, which is really like my pathway to liberation. So when I think of yoga, I'm not actually thinking about a physical movement in the body. I'm thinking about the reality of like connecting to my true self in a culture that tells me all sorts of things about who I really am. And the breath is like the pathway to like the essence of who I really am, which is counter to what the culture says I am based on being in this black body and moving in the world. And I don't mean like, um, we do need to use our minds. I, I believe that. I more mean like the stories that we've been told about who we are based on some people being superior and other people being inferior. Um, that's what I mean when I say the mind will limit us and then it makes us shapeshift, as you named earlier. It makes us operate in particular ways. It makes us um, compete. It makes us um, power over, right? Instead of build power together or stand in solidarity. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean when I say the mind will limit mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. uh, but the breath will actually allow us to be free and understand that our liberation is bound. Mm -hmm. The breath is that powerful and that's yoga. That's all it is, is breathing. That's how I think about it. And we see what you're describing in all sorts of spaces, right? In movement spaces, in political spaces, in change-making spaces. We're replicating, we're shape-shifting, we're, right, like, we're suffering from the disease of white supremacy everywhere. We see it everywhere. Everywhere. Yes, it is everywhere. It is insidious. It is um, alive. Um, it is pervasive. It is, it informs almost everything we do individually and as a collective. And it's, it's powerful such that we can replicate it in the systems that we're trying to create to counter the culture that's harming all of us. Have you, have you always been this convicted around anti-racism? I mean, obviously like you grew up a black woman, but did you, were you born <laughs> a resistor and an activist? Like, was that always your calling? I believe so. I found out about my birth story about three years ago, and I knew I was a um, preemie, so I was born two months early. I, I knew that um, from a very young age. My mother told me the story of my birth. But then three years ago, she told me more about my birth, and she told me that the afterbirth came out before me and that I wouldn't come out <laughs> and that the doctors... Um, said that I was small. They told her that. And she was terrified because she'd already lost a baby. And um, they told her they had to do a C-section, an emergency C-section. So they put her under anesthesia and um, they pulled me out. And I think it's significant that the afterbirth, which is 
I mean, it is after birth, it's not death, came out before I actually came out of the womb. And I actually feel like I decided to come out in this lifetime. Like, I feel like it was an, an act of like, I have something to come into this lifetime to do um, and I'm going to do it. And I was two pounds and three ounces. Whoa. So you could hold me in your hand. And I really had to choose to survive. Like I had to say, I'm going to live. That's I, I am quite sure that that was my experience in the incubator for a month that I was like telling myself and my soul, right, you have to live. And I'm sure my ancestors told me that I had something to do right and I needed to live. And so I feel like I was a survivor in that way. I am a survivor and that I was resisting in that moment in a culture that that was not set up for a black baby who was two pounds and three ounces with the black woman who was birthing me with no father around like to survive. Neither of us were meant to survive. We weren't set up in that way. And yet I did anyway, and my mother did, and she was very sick when she had me. And so I feel like, yeah, I came out a resistor. I came out an activist because I had the will to survive. Is that resilience? I think that's resilience. I think that's um, resistance. I think that is um, the memory of my ancestors. I think that is the awareness that I am my ancestors' dreams. So... Um, that sounds like a miracle. <laughs> um, and also like totally on purpose <laughs> at the same time. And I know that um, knowing you personally, that you call yourself a witch and are, and are always using intuition and mysticism to navigate your way through racism and the world as we know it. How, how, does, how do those tools help you? How do they serve you in this work? So I've always been intuitive. Um, as a child, I was um, a loner in some ways. Like in my neighborhood, I was with myself a lot. I didn't have children my age in my neighborhood. At school, obviously, I'd interact with children. But I was by myself. I was a curious child. Um, my mother has premonitions. My grandmother had premonitions. And I knew that from a young age. Um, and I, I um, remember feeling like I knew things or that my curiosity was connected to magic in some way growing up. Like I, I understood that, but it wasn't until after George Zimmerman was acquitted and Trayvon Martin was murdered that I really like started to lean into my magic and mysticism. And you know, the way it happened is George, George Zimmerman was acquitted. I fell to pieces. Like I was, I fell apart. I, I like cracked open the world felt very different for me. I had PTSD in a way that I'd never had before. And I needed something to help me um, regain a sense of self and something to help me feel like there was some order in the world and something to help me remember the expanse of the universe. And so I started to to go outside and hike and, and experience nature in a different way. Because when I was in nature, it was the only thing that made sense. Like there's an order to nature. We're, we're destroying that pretty quickly, but there's an order. Things, um, we can see things in nature. We can see the ecosystem. We can see the connection between things in a capitalist culture that doesn't actually allow us to see the connection between each other, right? One another. And I started to go outside more and more. And then I started to, um, listen to the natural world and signs from the natural world. And I started to become curious about my capacity to manifest things, to create, to birth. Um, and 
it's sort of like faith. That's how I think about it. My mother and grandmother, um, my grandmother passed away in November, but my mother and grandmother, they, my mom's deeply devotional. My grandmother was deeply devotional and, um, they believed in something bigger than them. And I feel like I, I had to do that to survive what it meant to be in a world where police or where people can just harm black boys Mm -hmm. without, um, being held accountable. Right. And I felt like I needed something to help me make sense of a world where Sandra Bland was murdered. And that could have been me. Like I needed something bigger than me that had an order and a system and a history to help me feel grounded, right? To help me feel connected in a world that was making no sense to me. So that's how I got into magic. There's some that say that magic is unreal and unrealistic. And there are many that say that our systems are too broken to fix, that white supremacy is too big to be dismantled. What do we say to that? I think we say we're bigger than white supremacy. And I think we remember that white supremacy was constructed Mm -hmm. because race was constructed. And so if it was made up, and yes, it has real power, we can construct something else. I've heard you say that um, I will not let white supremacy steal my joy. What does that look like? It's related to radical self-care because the culture set up for me to die. That means the culture set up for me to um, not feel joy and my birthright is joy. And I will not let this world and this culture take away my spirit and my joy because my intention is very different than the culture's like intention around who I should be or how I should be able to live or move. So I'm like fierce about it actually, which you can probably hear in my voice. Well, you were fierce coming out of the womb. Totally. (laughs) Fire. Shocker. There was ferocity there. And you're a Leo. Yes. I'm a Leo. Fire. And you are still blazing a trail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you are my fellow Leo. I know. I'm so grateful to be on this path with you. It's awesome. And it's so great to play with you. One of the things I, I, um, I respect about you and I admire and I appreciate about you is um, how gracefully you move in collaboration, um, especially with white folks like me and all of our mistake making and um, catching up and waking up. Um, and replicating and failing and getting back up and trying to do better. Um, and so I just want to thank you for thank that, you. For, for like the, for, for the willingness and the capacity um, to do that and mm-hmm. to move in the world um, with, um, with folks who have, you know, fucked up so much shit <laughs> mm-hmm. and believe that we can be better. And we have to be better. And we have to be better for all of us. Right. We have to be better. And, you know, it's, an, it's another gift from Cynthia. When, so um, when Cynthia passed away, she um, said, you know, don't leave anyone behind. That was her, mm-hmm. her gift to mm-hmm. the people around her when she passed away. And I think I knew that. I was living into it. It just took a different shape when she said it. Like, never leave anyone behind. Because what that means, and it, I think this is my yoga practice in the world, right? What it means, other, in addition to, like, radical self-care, 
and um, joy, right? It means that I I don't actually want to beat up white people. Like that's not actually my dharma or work in the world. And I can separate out separate out cultural conditioning from the person. And I understand the culture enough to know how it's like um, pushing us to shape shift into things that we're not and things that we're we were never meant to be. Right? I can I can see that enough to extend compassion and grace. Mm. And I feel like if I extend compassion and grace, like I'm on the right path. If I extend um, harm, I'm just harming myself because we're that deeply connected. So I I think it's in the spirit of not leaving anyone behind. Well, and I've heard Adrienne Marie Brown call it like not canceling people. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say as a white person that that's not an invitation to be let off the hook. Absolutely. Like when I hear folks like you say that to me in in relationship, it calls me up to like hold myself to a higher bar, to -hmm. hold myself accountable, to Mm -hmm. hold myself in integrity, to work harder, to try harder and to show up better. Um, And so I'm, I'm grateful for, I feel like the generosity of what you're saying. And I just, want to I want to invite white folks who hear that to um to be called up right because it says I will be here for you and I will extend grace in a world that has not extended grace to me that's right in a culture that did not extend grace to my ancestors and I am willing to extend grace and compassion because I I actually love you deeply enough to do that mm-hmm. right and I love people I don't even know like deeply enough to do that And what would the world be like if we could move in it that way? Mm -hmm. It would be so very different. I think that's the perfect end note. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I love you. I love you so much. So good. Until next time. Until next time, Karen Kelly. While this episode is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to acknowledge where in your life you might be replicating harmful systems of oppression and to get more skilled in awareness and action. Her book is a really good place to start. Go to michellecjohnson.com to buy her book and follow her at Skill in Action. Special thanks to our producer Trevor Exter and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and share the love by telling your friends to check us out.